Well, hello, Praxis. Um, my name's Chris, staff here on Lighthouse, uh, here at Lighthouse, and just really thankful for the opportunity to, to come here and um, speak to you from God's word of this evening's uh, evening. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Romans. Uh, if you're new and need some help finding the book of Romans in your Bible, you can ask Siri, you can Google it, uh, or you can just go to like the halfway point after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, you'll find Romans. Tonight, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. And we're really at a critical point of our series this evening, because Paul has been laying out his case against all of the defendants and people who think of them, themselves as being good, as being righteous. And so Paul is sort of wrapping things up. But this is not a birthday present or a Christmas gift adorned with a nice petite bow. Paul's laying down the final statement of his prosecution for every single person in this world before God. This is the moment where the proverbial wooden gavel strikes, but it's not the people's court. It is God's court. And every person from every age on this terrestrial ball known here as earth is brought to the stand before the Supreme Court of God. So this should weigh heavily on our minds. And what Paul reveals tonight is more than a passing pandemic, but a pervasive reality that, that explains the results and effects of fallen sinful humans. It explains the curse of death for humanity and the eternal path that all of us are headed towards without Jesus Christ. Beloved, this passage is nothing less than a universal prosecution of every single human being that ever lived. So let us not lose sight of the gravitas of, of what as well as whose life is at stake here, which is why I encourage you to now look with me at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. The ESV reads, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will ever be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is the inspired and sufficient word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for just this opportunity that we can come before your word. Help our hearts so that we come humbly, that we will come broken, and that we would hear, and that your spirit would, would, would speak and just uh, uh, illuminate and make clear the, the, the truth of your word, Lord. And I pray that it would change and transform us, Lord. And really, 
uh, we even reshape and reconsider our view of sin. Uh, not only the pervasiveness of sin, but the seriousness of sin. Help our time this evening in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, um, one of the timeless movies that I remember watching as a young child in this American life was Rodgers and Hammerstein's The Sound of Music. Uh, the story is based on true events centered around this character, this person named uh, Maria, a free-spirited uh, Austrian woman who's studying to become a nun. So the spiritual mother of this abbey that Maria is part of basically sees Maria as this youthful girl in need of discipline and a more mature outlook on life. So Maria is sent off to work as a governess under this widowed captain by the name of George von Trapp and attend to his family of seven children. After bringing love and music into the lives of the family through, the, through kindness, through patience, she ends up mirroring the, the, the widowed captain and together with the children, they find a way to survive the loss of their homeland through courage and faith. All of this takes place under uh, the lead up to World War II during the rising power of the Third Reich, Nazi Germany. Uh, while I won't offer spoilers, uh, one thing that stands out are the echoes of faith during a tumultuous time when the culture and the, and the view of what is right and true were shifting. Uh, to stand on one's convictions and beliefs required great faith on their part, especially when your life and your family's livelihood would be at stake. The country of Austria that the family loves is at risk of losing its traditions and values due to being annexed by Nazi forces. So the von Trapp family decided to save their spiritual health rather than trying to maintain their material wealth. And there's a powerful scene where the, Captain George tears up this Nazi flag that was put up by the forces. And so the sound of music is very memorable for me because it is a story like many others where great faith was demonstrated when the values and beliefs around them were shifting and changing as they so often do when government powers rise and fall and cultures change. And the same could be said about our age and culture today. We live in a time when we don't see ourselves as naturally bad, or at least humanity doesn't see themselves that way. The world's social problems and malaise is attributed as merely being structural or, or being a governmental problem. Psychologists rest in theories and models to explain the systemic roots of people's aberrant behavior and actions. I know I have to be careful and nuanced here, but Perhaps it is convenient to explain away our actions and, and blame it on our brains. To hold and believe in the concept of universal sin of all people can be seen as, as hostile or even hate speech. Something only an ignorant bigot or an uneducated Christian would believe. Instead, the world turns the other way in addressing the world's fundamental problem in this fallen world. Tolerance for all is a spouse and demanded in our modern world. But intolerance is acceptable and virtuous when the heat is against Christians who believe the authoritative truth and claims of God's word. Why? Because we live in a world not just with many ideas and philosophies, but in a world where there's a clash of what we believe to be fundamental about humanity. And so what we are discussing tonight may challenge some of you. 
It is also why it also takes a great faith to believe in what God says in our context today as Christians. Yet at the same time, all of humanity should believe the truth and reality of who they truly, truly are as humans. Which brings us to our key idea this evening. That it takes great faith to believe that you are an unrighteous sinner and in need of Jesus Christ. The first point that we're going to look at is, that, is this. Faith to acknowledge the universal conditions. So in verse 9 through 10, Paul sums up his case as a prosecutor against those who still hold to the notion that they're good and innocent people before a holy and just God. You see, we all want to be the exception. We all want to think of ourselves as great and the virtuous escape artist that can even foil the great Sherlock Holmes when it comes to breaking God's law. We're not criminals. We're human liberators, we would say. There's always that reason, that one reason why someone might still justify themselves as being good and a righteous person. But God won't have that. As Ellen preached last week, the Jews were no better off than the Gentiles when it comes to being under sin. Sure, there is the advantage that they had with having the law of God. But as many of us former college students know, having access to a textbook or physically owning a textbook doesn't mean you're going to get an A come final exam time. Or just owning a bar exam prep guide doesn't mean you're going to pass the bar and become a great lawyer. Yet this faulty logic was exhibited in this sort of religious privileged thinking that led to this uh, group of collective Jews to believe they had a decisive advantage. An advantage that would allow them to outright avoid or not be accountable to God's judgment of them. In other words, this was their self-justification. And so the Apostle Paul emphatically states, no, not at all. They aren't any better off with respect to being under sin and God's judgment for them. But this shouldn't have been news to the Jews. The prophet Amos declared Israel's guilt in Amos 3, verses 1 through 2. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And similar to the prophet's declaration, what Paul does is lay out this necessary groundwork in order for you to appreciate and see your need for Jesus. First, you need to know what you need Jesus for. Why everyone needs Jesus is because of this universal condition that plagues us all. Everyone, or as the text says in verse 9, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So until self-righteous people see that they are not an exception to the rule, they're not going to see their need for Jesus. And so Paul is being very pointed to state that there's no exceptions. Every person is a sinner. Throughout the book of Romans so far, uh, sin can be understood broadly as evil activities and attitudes that Paul previously mentioned from chapter 1 through 3. Sin is unrighteousness, such as suppressing the truth. Sin is impurity, such as uh, in Romans 1.24, sin is envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, boasting, disobedience, foolishness, as stated in Romans 1.29 and 31. Sin is doing evil. Sin is transgressing God's law, Romans 2.23. Sin is idolatry, where we place and esteem anything other than God as being the supreme focus of our worship and affections. Which is why in verse 10, 
Paul unleashes his prosecution on humanity. He starts simply with, it is written. And really what he's about to do is stop every single complaint or excuse a person can come up, come up with to defend themselves. We're near the end of humanity's trial. So how is humanity shown to be under the power of sin? And this is where Paul really brings out the facts of the matter. What Paul is about to do is unleash a litany of Old Testament passages in succession to demonstrate the power of sin and its hold over humanity. Paul is using a technique that Bible scholars attribute as called stringing of pearls, like the formation of a necklace. And verses 10 through 18 contains more Old Testament passages chained together in succession than any other of Paul's writings. But rather than being a beautiful and adorned necklace on people's neck, it is a noose. It is a chain that binds everyone before the authority and judgment of God. He's letting the Old Testament echoes of scripture set the precedent for this trial now in session. And Paul begins to string this chain of guilt around humanity in verse 10 when he says, none is righteous, no, not one. In God's estimation, everyone is depraved. We stand in an unrighteous position before God. But, but, but what about the person in the third world country? Nope. What about the Nobel Peace Prize winner? Nope. What about humanitarians and advocates of justice? Nope. Our earthly standards for righteousness, righteousness falls infinitely short of God's standard for righteousness. None of us can come close to God's standard of righteousness. And this is the watershed passage for the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity means that every part of our being and nature is contaminated by sin and sin's power. Scottish pastor by the name of Thomas Boston once described total depravity as entire depravity. Another brilliant theologian, Jonathan Edwards, said something similar when he wrote, all mankind are by nature in a state of total ruin. As we studied earlier, total depravity does not mean that we're always as bad as we possibly could be 24-7. But what total depravity teaches us is this. The problem isn't just that we commit sins. The problem is that we're enslaved to sin. We're sinners through and through. Sin permeates all aspects of human nature. Everyone is under the power of sin and its effect ever since Adam and Eve attempted to self-justify themselves in the disobedience of God when they ate from the tree of good, uh, knowledge of good and evil. They were warned yet disobeyed. And the consequence was, in fact, that they will surely die, as well as everyone after them. It's a tale as old of time, as time and true as it could be that men and women have since continued to sin and do evil to this day. Our depravity is like a drop of cyanide into a cup of water that makes the whole cup undrinkable. But even this illustration falls short, for it doesn't account for the fact that poison and the toxic nature of our sin is actually within us to begin with. It is our fallen state since we are born into this world. Sin and unrighteousness affects all aspects of humanity just as much as it affects you and me as individuals. It affects our thinking, it affects our emotions, it affects our will, it affects our heart. 
Everyone is tainted and contaminated by the power of sin. And it means left to our own power and devices, we're not going to stop from sinning. We can do no other thing but than to sin. Total depravity corrects our false notion that humanity is actually progressing towards righteousness. It confronts this hubris idea that the postmodern man is more mature in his or her ideas and philosophies than previous generations. Yet at the same time, total depravity isn't nihilism as if life were meaningless and that we should just reject religious and moral principles. Paul speaks right into the heart of the matter. That is the warp and woof of our human dilemma, the root problem. You see, none of the solutions can solve or provide an answer to the problem that reveals the world's brokenness. Only the revealed word of God has the answer, and Paul is laying out all the cards on the table. You see, the biggest problem is humanity's sin problem. That they're under the power of sin without Jesus. It's not an external or extraneous problem. It is an internal and intrinsic problem with who we are. Jesus said in Mark 7, 15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And because the power of sin affects everyone universally, it means everyone individually is going to be accountable before God. Back when I lived and worked in San Francisco, a couple of other young adults and college students, myself included, we would try to initiate conversations on campus at like SF State, USF, Jesuit Catholic University, in order to share the gospel. And after doing campus evangelism more regularly, we noticed a trend. Perhaps you have also, also when you have conversations with of the gospel with your friends and family. And so one of the probing questions that um, me and others ask these students were this. If you were to die today, you were to stand before God, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you respond? You want to know the most common answer that we heard? It went along the lines of, well, I've tried to be a good person. Well, I'm not as bad off as these people. I've tried to live a morally upright life. I grew up going to church. Surely God will see that and forgive me and grant me eternal life, right? Or maybe some of you have spoken with people older than you, and you've heard something along the lines of, well, you know, I tried my best to provide and raise an upright family to benefit society, to raise my children right, right? Provide and care for them. But if we peel back the layers of reasoning behind this, at its core is self-righteous and self a self-justifying mindset. Why? Because you're relying on your perceived goodness and righteous actions to somehow offset all the bad and wrong things you've done in life, right? And that's going to somehow put you in a positive position for the transgressions you have committed. We've become dodgers of personal guilt and responsibility for our sin. We naturally try to dodge guilt and responsibility against other people made in the image of God when we've wronged them. We justify, we give reasons for our idolatry as 
the grounds for why we don't seek God. And so because the underlying fact for why we actually sit and transgress God's law that's written on our hearts, our conscience, or from what we can learn from the Bible is the fact that we're under sin's power. And Paul's circling back to this fundamental idea. But why is it like this? It's because who we're, it's who we naturally are. And that brings us to our second point and the challenging statement he wants his readers to have faith in. Faith to admit that sin is humanity's natural bent in verses 11 through 12. Maybe some of you are not, you're not, you're not convinced. You, you, you can't muster enough faith at this moment to admit that sin and unrighteousness is, is your MO. It's the, the, the MO of the rest of humankind. Consider the words of Paul as he cites portions of Psalm 14, 2 to 3, as well as Psalm 53. A Psalm of David that captures the foolishness of denying God's existence. What Paul's reiterating here in Romans, this timeless principle that no one naturally seeks or searches for God. In fact, they, they deliberately turn from God. That's the natural bent of humanity. They suppress the truth about God to then continue in their bent ways. Romans 1.18. And the, reality, the reason for this is depravity has an effect on people's minds. But we're not talking about mental abilities or IQ. You can have an incredibly high IQ and be considered an intellect who has scaled the upper echelons of academia at an Ivy League institution. But guess what? This has nothing to do with intellectual brilliance nor street smarts. It has to do with your spiritual mind. Your mind cannot function with regards to spiritual matters because depravity has affected it. 1 Corinthians 2.14 writes, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to. And he is not able to comprehend them because they are spiritually discerned. And so because we are captive under sin, which affects the nature of our minds, we don't seek after God. I think this is a real challenge uh, to how we sometimes conceive and uh, of someone genuinely seeking after God and the truth even if it's not seeking after Jesus and what he said in his word. There's something within us that just wants to say, come on, he or she seems earnest in their quest for truth. Uh, their attitude seems so genuine. Surely God would view that person as being righteous and acceptable in their quest for God. But the reality is the opposite. No one genuinely seeks after the one true and living God. They are incapable on their own to un until God does a work of change in their hearts and minds to not only hear the gospel, but to also believe in the gospel. Ephesians 4.18 speaks of the unbeliever's mind when it says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So what does this all mean for someone who claims they are seeking God apart from Christ? Well, it means the so-called seekers aren't really seeking after God because the hardness of heart means they're turning away from God. And I know this is maybe shocking for some of you to hear. In fact, even myself sometimes, I've also often said of others or people have asked like, oh, where are they at spiritually, right? Maybe we've, we said it ourselves. This person is seeking after God. Now, does that, that mean I believe that they're saved and a Christian? No. Does that mean I believe that this person is genuinely searching for God? Absolutely not. I think at best, it means that there is some intellectual interest in learning about God and religion. 
At best, it means that this so-called seeker is seeking maybe the benefits of what God can hopefully provide him or her. Maybe it's self-improvement if he or she follows these certain steps and rights in his or her spiritual journey. Maybe it's the expectation that one will find meaning and purpose in life and maybe even wild success. Maybe it's wealth and prosperity. Maybe it's going to church and seeking out spirituality, which will then land you a wife or husband. I mean, we maybe laugh about that. But I mean, honestly, maybe some people's parents have actually told them that before and given that advice as motive for seeking God. Maybe in someone's search for God, they're seeking some sort of peace to then move forward with past guilt or broken relationships. Maybe someone is searching for God to fill their loneliness and emptiness in life. But none of these examples are what it means to truly seek God. None of these get to the heart of what it means to seek God. It's seeking God for all the wrong reasons and with the wrong heart motives. So if we ever find ourselves saying or maybe commending the phrase, that person is a seeker, you know, we should probably clarify in the future that the person appears to be seeking God, but we should be left with a big question mark. And that question mark is this, to what ends and purpose am I seeking God or that person seeking God? There's also a big question mark as to what they know and actually believe about the one true God revealed in scripture through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For that is the only appropriate evidence that the spirit of God is at work in their hearts. When they come to know who Jesus Christ is and and then embrace Jesus for what he has done on the cross. You see, getting blessings or benefits from God is not actually seeking God. Therefore, as a believer, I'm compelled to then evangelize and talk about the gospel and not presume upon that person's relationship before God as if they are on the path of salvation because we consider them a seeker. What a travesty and unloving thing it would be to leave that so-called seeker alone, thinking that they can come to salvation on their own. What short-sightedness to think that the so-called seeker can can become a Christian without God working in that person's heart as others or people like me and you share about Christ to that lost soul. Beloved, if there is something we should take away from what Paul has said about knowing seeking God, it's this. We don't seek after God first. God must seek us out first. For it is by grace through faith that you have been saved, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift from God. Even our faith is a gift from God. It's not a work from our own, out of ourselves. But Paul's not finished. Verse 12 states that all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. We're naturally God-haters. We're not born with an innate search for God. We are naturally dead in our trespasses of sin. And the only reason we love him is because he first loved us. Without him, we would remain in our sinful path and our ways. Without him, we would continue in our depravity. There's a deliberate turning away from God and mankind, mankind's sinful depravities. There's there's a willfulness in their wandering away from God. What people seek for naturally is not God, but their imaginary gods, their pursuit of idols. Humanity turns to other things in this world, which then become their God. It functions as their God. They will exhaustively work and seek the approval of these demanding idols in their lives 
whether it's seeking fame, fortune, or family. And then functionally, these idols promise something in fulfilling the desires of their heart. Yet the turning away from God for idols is the epitome of our rebellion and rejection of God. Humanity naturally turns and seeks not after the one true God, but towards the wrong path of a false religion and system that cannot save. Whether it's Shintoism, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, Judaism, any other path than turning towards the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is considered a turning away from God. But the prosecution is not finished. Together, humanity has become useless. The unbeliever makes no grounds in pleasing or serving God. Here, he or she may do virtuous deeds, but what's not done for God and his glory is not doing good for God. What's not done out of an inward motivation to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength is not considered good to make one righteous before him. Though there are charities and humanitarian acts of good towards others, everything done does not commend or make that person righteous before God. Nothing a person does can gain God's approval. Nothing a person does out of his own own effort can earn the favor of God so that he would declare you as being righteous. If one isn't convinced that they are unrighteous and a sinner, Paul begins to then show the extent of sin's corrupting power on humanity in this world. How does the pervasive nature of sin get played out? The answer is found in our third point. Faith to agree on blatant evidence of depravity. Now that the universality of sin has been established, the focus then shifts on demonstrations, proofs of sin. In other words, sin characterizes humanity to highlight their sinful depravity. As you can see, there's there's a sequential progression as well as a thoroughness to highlight our depravity. It's comprehensive, which is why Paul highlights how our whole body demonstrates our depravity. As one commentator wrote, verses 13 and 8 through 18, it's an x-ray, a study of the lost sinner from head to foot. Various parts of our body are involved in our sin against God and people. Depravity is evident in our speech. Keep in mind that this includes words spoken as well as written, just in case you thought Twitter and Facebook aren't platforms where people demonstrate their depravity in speech. But I digress. Words come from your mouths, where the air is pushed out towards your mouth as it's funneled through your throat. And this vivid imagery reveals how your speech and words are often full of corruption that brings the smell of death and unpleasant stench like an open tomb. He's not talking about bad breath where you need more Listerine. He's talking about foul speech. But not only is the throat involved in sinful speech, our tongue is also involved as well. Whether it's deliberately making promises promises you don't intend to keep or flattering speech to deceive and take advantage of others for one selfish gain, Words are often spoken to hide one's true intention and motives. The venom of ass, or basically a snake, shows the destructive nature of speech. Like a venomous snake inflicts damage on others and can ruin people's lives, your speech can damage and hurt others. Your words coming out of your lips are often like venom that spews or shoots out venom like a cobra. Smear campaign, character assassination, gossip, slander, defamation, words that tear down others. Can I suggest that venomous speech for the sake of politics does not make it righteous and okay? 
every single faculty of our speech is used to give evidence of our debased hearts. While we were created in the image of God and called to use our bodies to glorify God, we instead use it to glorify ourselves while harming others through our words. In our depravity, every part of humanness, uh, hu uh, hum our humanness is twisted and tainted. In our cursing, we don't necessarily use profanity all the time or bad words, right? But cursing is also when we say things as to wish or have that desired effect upon a person. It would be something along the lines of, or maybe even thought, where I wish that person would just drop dead. It's when you speak and say things that reveal you want the worst for someone through your toxic words. Bitter speech demonstrates harsh and hostile words. Like when you explode on others with your words due to your sinful anger. And you, you know what? You can't blame it on cultural K-rage. You can't blame it on the Korean dramas you're watching. When you blow up on other people. It's not okay that your words and speech are not okay. Your sinful heart is the root of the problem. Look at verses 15 to 17 as it transitions from speech to outward actions. Evil is not just confined to the tongue. It's through your actions. He's quoting Isaiah 59 verses 7 through 8, where the prophet highlights Israel's collective depravity and what prevented them from them being delivered by God. And what was true for Israel when the prophet spoke is being used by the apostle Paul to not just characterize Israel, but all of mankind and why they, they will not be delivered by God on their own. The sinfulness of humans affect every path they walk and person they encounter. Like a bowling ball on a path uh, to strike down pins, humans inflict destruction and misery when their paths come in contact with other people. Because of people's sinful actions, other people are left in destruction and misery. You see, sin always affects other people as well. Sin is not just, oh, it affects me. It affects others. It brings misery on a spouse if you're married. It can, it can bring misery on your children if you're a parent. Even as singles, our sinful words and actions can destroy and damage our friendships. Our sinful behavior often contributes to the calamity and suffering of others. Like a father abandoning his children because of a sinful alcohol or gambling addiction and then leaving his family in financial ruin. The way of peace is not known. It spills over and is demonstrated in evil actions in society all over the world in all periods of time since the fall of man. Quick towards violence, killings, murders, mass shootings, genocide. While the idea of a man-made world of peace is idyllic, it's impossible due to human depravity. And to sum up the demonstration, Paul addresses the fundamental problem in verse 18 where he quotes Psalm 36, verse one. The root error that results in many sins in human society is a lack of fear of God. This is the theological underpinning that concludes this chain of sin. At the heart of our sociological problems in humanity is a theological problem. It's a God problem. We don't fear and reverence God. So then we continue in our foolish ways. The brokenness in our society and culture is really the fruit of humanity's sin problem. If we don't have faith to agree that such blatant demonstrations of depravity in our world are fundamentally rooted in the sin problem, then we're never going to understand the importance of the gospel 
for us as well as for others in this world. So then how should we process humanity's sin problem? Well, the proper response is found in our last point, and it gets personal. Faith to accept God's verdict for the unrighteous in verses 19 to 20. The law is brought up again as Paul sums up the prosecution. We know that it was the Jews who were given the Mosaic law. So then what's this got to do with everyone else? This includes the moral prescriptions and how to live in relationship with God through the Ten Commandments. What's he saying here? Well, he says that if if the people of Israel, the Jews, if they were given such a law of which they were bound under, and yet they failed to abide and live according to, how much more then is everyone else in this world going to be prone to falling short of this standard, this law, and the requirements of the law? How much more is the rest of the world not abiding by God's law? If the Jews had the privilege of being God's covenant people and they couldn't keep the law, then we can reasonably conclude that no one can. The Gentiles surely can't. And that's the point. We're not talking about privilege and advantage of having the law at this point. The point is everyone falls short of living righteously according to the standard of God's law. God's word is the standard. And if the Jews fail to be considered righteous by attempting to live in accordance to this law, then they have the very ones that have access to it, then we will not be justified by the law either. So then what's the purpose of God's law? Well, it's to leave the Jews and it's to leave us, everyone else in this kind of defenseless position before God. The law of God doesn't make people better It makes people worse off because it shows people their sin. It exposes where people fall short. It shows where they have deficits in their righteousness or lack of righteousness. Rather than giving access to uh, to the favor of God, it silences you before God. No one can even attempt to argue for their personal righteousness. There's nothing more to say. There's no material or relevant evidence to be revealed. There's there's nothing left to say in response to the, the divine charges brought against me and you and upon humanity. To do otherwise would be foolish, an obvious grasping for straws. The defense is left utterly defenseless. The prosecution has given the decisive closing argument. Ours and everyone else's mouths are wide shut before the final verdict given by his holy justice, God himself. All of us are unrighteous. All of us are sinfully depraved. All of us are guilty. The knowledge of sin that comes from God's law is meant to humble mankind. It's meant to bruise and break our unwarranted ego and sense of pride, thinking we're more righteous than others. We're better off than others. Other people are the problem. I'm good. Ultimately, it's meant to drive us to seek grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you who are Christians, this point is obvious. We accept and believe such things. So then why does it take faith to accept God's verdict for the unrighteous? Because we often fail to live by faith each day by acknowledging and owning up to our sins, our remaining sin. We minimize sin or wouldn't couch our actions in terms of an internal heart problem for which we're guilty for. Instead of a humble admission of our sin and confession that drives us to Jesus and the gospel, we still try to justify ourselves daily when we we blame others 
excuse ourselves for our unloving or destructive speech. Maybe for some of you, you blame your girlfriend or boyfriend for why you're so impatient, unkind, or assume the worst about him or her, instead of hoping and believing the best about that person and giving that person the benefit of the doubt. Maybe for some, you minimize your anger, your bitter bitterness towards another person. Though you haven't actually shed blood, you've committed murder in your heart. And these verses should prick your hearts as believers to realize the seriousness of your sin. To not excuse yourself and think you've arrived in holiness. To not think that there's some sort of spiritual honor in trying to be the worst Christian possible. As if there's some sort of badge of uh, maturity as you profess to follow Jesus. But then continue to be as worldly and earthly minded as possible. As if genuine faith and worship are compatible with all the, the world deems as virtuous and righteous in his pursuits. Because for the majority of mankind who aren't Christians, there still remains this pervasive hesitancy to admit one is unrighteous. And the longer humanity tries to change the subject, the longer humanity tries to, to blame our behavior or their behavior on genes, social environment, education, or lack of education, uh, external factors as being the, the prime contributors to their problems, the longer humanity will remain lost and condemned before God. Therefore, we must not ignore the accurate diagnosis the divine physician has provided. Otherwise, we will be unable to receive the divine treatment for our depravity. And maybe that's you tonight. There's still some pushback against the idea that you, just like everyone else, are not actually inherently good. Maybe you're rationalizing in your mind, but I've done this, I've done that, relative to this person I know. But the reality of our passage tonight teaches us that when we stand before God, it's not going to be because of anything that you, me or you have done. Being a good law keeper doesn't place you in a right standing with God. It's not a checklist that you can keep perfectly. The law is instructive in showing me and you how far, how, how, how far we fall short of this standard so that we might be made more aware of our sin. That's what it's supposed to teach us. If God's law is the benchmark, we fail. The law doesn't justify, but brings cons uh, consciousness about our sin. And while the world rejects the claim that man is inherently bad and evil, it takes personal faith in today's world to accept this radical truth. It takes faith to come to the point where you're left silent and without words when it comes to what has been said in our passage. But you know what? This is actually a very great place to be. Perhaps you realize now just how hopeless it is to try to save yourself. You're in a good place when you stop relying on your own standard or metric of good that will justify you. It requires that you cut against the grain and natural bent as the rest of humanity. And that's why it takes great faith to believe you are an unrighteous sinner. But you want to know what's even greater? If you acknowledge your depravity, if you admit that you are a sinner, if you agree that you have demonstrated sin in your life, if you accept God's verdict concerning your unrighteousness, you're in an even greater position than you can possibly imagine. 
Why? Because you're in a position to receive the greatest news that could ever be spoken to you, that you could ever hear and believe. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, you're not left hopeless, but hopeful. William J. of Bath, as in Bath, England, in the UK, 19th century gospel minister, once said as a very old man, my memory is failing, but there are two things that I never forget. That I am a great sinner and that Jesus Christ is a great savior. Praxis, it takes great faith to believe we are unrighteous sinners in need of Jesus. But this faith is necessary in order to be saved from our depravity. This faith is necessary to be changed and transformed in the image of Christ. This faith is necessary for us to be forgiven of our sin and declared not guilty. And this faith is necessary to be rescued from the wrath and judgment of God. It's at the cross of Jesus Christ that we see a cross between the righteous son and how it intersects with the unrighteous humanity. Oh, how sweet it is that when we were hopeless in our sin and rebellion against God, that Christ obeyed the law perfectly and being righteous, died for the unrighteous as our substitute. Let us live by faith each day in the rock of ages, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And may this passage be a sound of music to your hearts and affections as you declare like the hymnist, not the labor of our hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could our zeal no respite know? Could our tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this passage hurts. It cuts straight through our hearts and reveals and leaves us undone for who we truly are, especially for those of us who do not profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Yet we thank you, God, that we were not left hopeless, but you bring us low so then you can bring us high to the peaks of Everest when we see the glory and bright light of Jesus Christ shining through our depravity, shining through our sin. And I pray that even as believers, we may have heard over, over, and again that we, are, we were at one point depraved before we knew and believed in Jesus Christ. But I pray that we would not lose sight of this reality so that we might not minimize sin in our day-to-day -day life, Lord. That we might see the seriousness of our sin, Lord, even as we strive towards holiness, Lord. And look for that day when we will declare not guilty because of Christ and his righteousness. Help us, Lord, to see the, our need for the gospel, Lord. And I pray that this will ring true in our hearts today, Lord, even after hearing such a sobering message from your word. And in, it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.